when we're moved, when we're stirred, when there's a lump in our throat or a tear in our eye, when we hear something so beautiful, when we experience something so uplifting, it's good to remember that those are all the characteristics of the spirit moving inside of us. So the choir is quite adept at moving the spirit of God within us. The spirit listens and the spirit responds. Thank you. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you that your spirit has moved among us. That the words of a of, of a song and the the notes that comprise it are so eloquent in letting us know you present and that we respond to it and it brings up images of a comforting and loving God as we know you are. We pray today, God, that our hearts and minds might be open to the way your spirit speaks to us through scripture. May we listen and hear. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. My granddaughters, Briella Rose and Liliana Grace, do not like the story of Cinderella. They are of an age where they can't quite figure out why they would need a Prince Charming to bail them out. And they also think that the stepmother and the sisters are just mean. And they don't like that. When I was a little girl, this was one of my favorite fairy tales. I felt like I could really relate. And it wasn't because I had a mean mom or a mean sister. They were and remain to this day to be my very best friends. But I was to learn that there are a lot of mean people in the world. A lot of people that can make a big difference in your life with what they say and the way they treat you. We were migrant workers living out of our car and worker shacks for my whole childhood. We were always late and new to the schools we attended, so we weren't invited to play dates and sleepovers. But as most children will do, I imagined that if there was an opportunity for those who seemed to have it all to really know me, they would be quite impressed by me. They would be impressed by my love of books and music and my ability to write stories and to tell jokes. All that it would take is for someone wise enough and loving enough to see past the things people are judged for. All it would take is for someone to look with eyes of kindness, compassion, wisdom, and love, and the glass shoe would slip effortlessly on. It's a fairy tale for all of us who have felt that we were the underdog or the undiscovered princess. So I was somewhat surprised, to be honest with you, that in rereading this story, that fairy tale came to mind. And all the things that one wishes from the fairy tale came to pass in the story of David's beginning rise to the throne. Listen then to the scriptures today, 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. 
Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I named to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, Well, there remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. The choice of David, the most unlikely of the brothers, has entered the Christian imagination as a characteristic mark of God's electing grace. We see this over and over again in all different books and Old and New Testament. God choosing what appears low and insignificant in the world, including coming into the world as something low and insignificant. And then God turning what and who we value and why we value them totally upside down. But also, I, I think, there is another reason for this, and that is so that no one can claim that those in power climbed there by themselves. God was never too, too keen on a king chosen by human beings. He warned human beings, if you choose a king, power corrupts, and pretty soon they will be corrupted and they will steal, and he went on down the list. But they insisted on a king, so God said, I think I have a better chance of choosing than you do. So God chooses. 
King David could never claim that he was so impressive that his father brought him to Samuel. He could never claim that it was his accomplishments or his looks or his stature that made him a standout among his seven brothers. He was simply chosen by God. And if he was willing, God would provide a way for the very best in him, all of his potential, all that was waiting to emerge to be used to lead the people of Israel and to bring glory to God. Oftentimes, I think it's very important to stop and reflect on the path that we've taken in life. Sometimes we fail to connect the opportunities that have been provided to us, to the invitations from God to use these opportunities to lead God's people, to serve God with humility, to serve one another with justice. If you're like me, you may find yourself asking the question, who am I to lead? And I have to be honest with you, I've said this throughout my life, I am the most unlikely person in the world. I can remember people early on in my career when it was not, um, it was simply not a given that women were in ministry. In fact, it was resisted by many people. I can remember that the only argument I had when somebody said women shouldn't be in ministry I remember responding to them, I know, I'm the most unlikely person you could ever imagine, but God has chosen me. And that's exactly right, because right from the start, it's not about us and what we can or cannot do. It's about God. It's about God's possibilities and God's desires and God's graces. It's about God's abilities. God always chooses people that have only one thing to offer, and that's obedience. And it's their will to offer it at that. It's about God's capacity to look deeply and to see a spark inside of a person. God sees a heart that is available to become a partner in God's intentions for the world. And then we have to ask ourselves, is our heart available? These verses and the chapters before us also remind us that God may choose and God may call and the call may be answered. But maintaining that deep communion with God is demanding and frankly, it's very hazardous. We don't have a great track record. Shifting attention to oneself and beginning to view what God is doing in your life and through your life as your accomplishments and your wins and your source of pride seems to be a hazard of human nature. We begin to think that all of these things are by our own hand and by our own accomplishment. As Bishop Ken Newtoner put in his most beautiful poem, Magnificent Enterprise, we may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. As you recall in this particular 
text, the chapter begins with the Lord asking Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Now Saul was one of those who was chosen by Samuel and by God. God had warned the people, like I said, about the perils of an earthly king. And then God worked with Samuel to anoint Saul as the first king of Israel. But that wasn't the end of it. We learn in these chapters that Saul is the tallest, most handsome man in all of Israel. And when Samuel presents him to the people as the new ruler they had requested, the prophet seems to assume that looks and stature suffice to make one a leader. He says, Do you see the one whom the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Saul certainly had early military victories, and he did win the approval of the people because of the way he looked and because he protected the borders. But he let the prerogatives of power go to his head. Saul assumed authorities not ascribed to him. In his anointing call and covenant with God and the people, he began to see himself not just a king, as a king, but appointed as the overall priest. He began to offer sacrifices. And the scriptures tell us that this was an offense to God. God had chosen him to be king, not priest. And eventually God rejected Saul as king. This grieving Samuel had been something of a father figure to Saul. And yet, it had been he who had been required to tell Saul that God had rejected him as king. Samuel never saw Saul again before his death. And he continued to grieve for him. And it is into this that we pick up our story. I think there are certainly moments in our own lives when... The thing we must do is the thing that causes us the most pain. We have to tell grown-up children that they must figure out life for themselves. Or honestly, they will never have a chance to be self-sufficient or successful. We have to end relationships with people we love, but that are too toxic for our own survival. We leave our jobs because the company is unethical. And we grieve, but even in the grief, just like even in the grief, just like Samuel, we call we find ourselves obedient to the way of life Christ has prescribed for us. Because we know that it is only in that that we will truly find ourselves. So still grieving, Samuel listened and obeyed God when he was given instructions to anoint a new king and where he would find them. But Samuel was still seeing, even after all of this, with the old eyes, judging by appearance. So when Jesse presented his first son, Eliab, who was tall and very handsome, the scriptures tell us that Samuel was surprised and that Samuel was sure that his work was done. But if you can imagine the afternoon drawing on and on as one son after another comes before Samuel, everyone is growing increasingly puzzled. Could God have made a mistake? Could Samuel have misinterpreted what God had said to him? 
For surely these are the cream of the crop. These are seven of, of his sons. God rejected what Samuel assumed was good judgment, and he rejected the next seven brothers because God was looking for a leader with heart. You know, the scriptures tell us, this particular scripture says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We've just celebrated Valentine's Day, and a lot of attention was given to hearts. Maybe you gave one. Maybe you received one. We talk about hearts and flowers. We see the decorations. And so we, we modern Westerners see the figurative heart as an epicenter for all emotions. But the heart was not just the center of emotions among the ancient people. They would not have understood this to simply mean God was looking for a leader that could sympathize or empathize or have compassion, although it was included. But the heart was the center of one's being in their understanding. It was a center, yes, of emotion, but also of wisdom, of commitment, and character. All of these things were the elements of the heart. Maybe it was more like what we call the soul. And there's a great lesson to be learned. And that we're still learning about how to measure leadership. How to measure the ones that God sends us. They don't come in the same size. They don't come in the same package. They don't come with the same words. They don't come sometimes to please us. Sometimes they come to challenge us. They don't come to tickle our ears. Sometimes they come as a boot to the backside. They come in all kinds of different ways. The right combination was absent in these first seven sons. It wasn't quite right. So Samuel said, just like in that Cinderella story, do you not have any other children? Do you have any other sons? And Jesse wasn't quick to respond to that. But God had given Samuel his directions. And Samuel was determined to follow them. And so Samuel had to ask that question, are there, there's got to be more. Where are they? That David had not been included in that lineup is an indication of his status in the family. His father identifies him as the youngest. But we know that that word that's used to identify the youngest is a term that could also be translated the smallest or even the least. I have the least son. The least in looks, the least in stature, the least in character, the least smart. It doesn't say, simply the least. 
So finally, what the scriptures describe as this ruddy-looking boy is brought in from the fields to stand before Samuel. And this is where there's such an ironic moment in the scripture. Because even knowing that God was looking past the exterior into the interior, that, that God had just told Samuel that God does not choose as mortals do, the narrator seems unable to help himself. From just, and he describes David as the boy with handsome eyes, the boy with beautiful eyes and such a very handsome young man. One of the things I was interested in was when this was particularly written. We know that in scripture quite often, if whoever is in charge, so to speak, Whoever is the king at the time, the scribes, will write favorably about that king. And if that king is, if a history is being given of a particular king and it's not written in the time of that king, quite often it'll be unfavorable. I'm not saying that the scribes added this in. I'm simply saying that it's interesting that in the time of King David's rule, this is the description we find. Perhaps because the beauty of one's heart, the loveliness of one's soul surpasses its physical container and is often seen through the portal to the, to the world, which is our eyes. Perhaps that's what the narrator meant. Or perhaps the scriptures remind us that human beings resist seeing the world through God's eyes. And the narrator simply can't help equating physical beauty with chosenness. But nonetheless, it's here in the description. And David's name is finally used at the very end. And he is anointed king. I can't help but think how liberating it is, how wonderful it is for God to see the truest you. That God's eye pierces the darkest night of our own insecurities, our own lack of self-worth. The divine perception cuts through the history that causes us to stoop from the weight of our own, our own lives and, and knocks down all the self-defensive walls that we put up around ourselves. It allows us to emerge from the prison of judgment by others and to let go of all that, that that might mean. Have you ever been singled out by another person and made to feel that you were particularly special in a way that no one has ever seen you before? I know that many of you feel that way because you're sitting next to somebody that did just that. I remember I did a, a clinical pastoral education unit, which is a unit that is required by our by presbytery in order to be ordained. It's when you serve as a chaplain in the hospital, but it's really more about dealing with the stuff going on inside of you than it is about chaplaincy work. It's about rooting out things that would stand between you and another person, your own sense of of worthlessness or insecurities. And I can remember taking one unit, and that's all that was required. 
And I remember going to the cafeteria and the supervisor of that uh, program, I had heard that there was such a thing as a residency, and that was, they invited, you had to be invited, and it was very competitive. And they were just then doing all the interviews for it, and it was for a, an entire year, full time. And I never even considered that because of my own feelings about what I was capable of, because it also paid very little, it was a very stipend. And I really didn't think anything was possible, so I never even applied. But at the end of the interviews, I met up with the supervisor who was doing the interviews, one of the board, and we sat at the, in the cafeteria talking to each other, and at the end of the interview, he said, I wonder if you'd like to be a resident. And I, I looked at him, I said, I haven't applied, I don't know. Uh, he said, I think you're the right person. And he said, we're almost through with our interviews, but if you're interested, I think I'd like to offer it to you. Now that was one of the few times in my life where I won the lottery. But in that, I have never forgotten that moment. Because when I went home, I began to think, he sees something in me that I can't see in myself. Maybe he's speaking for God. And that ended up, of course, me taking that residency and it being one of the richest and most powerful shaping elements of my whole career as a pastor. I believe that the way we see each other, the way God sees us past our own mortality and past all of that we accomplish and all that we do straight into the heart of us allows us to give ourselves generously and freely to God so that we can approach the world, our lives, and our fellow travelers, knowing that we have a contribution that we may not see, that some others might not see, but that is more precious than all the treasures of the world because God sees it. And perhaps like me, for you, finally, finally, the shoe slips on and it is a perfect fit. Amen.